Well, I've been thinking this past week, like I said, I was out of town. I've had a lot of time to think since being here for the last time. And well, also, I'm excited just to see you guys again. It was cool to see you guys in the lobby. Good to be back. I've been thinking in the past week, though, um, let me ask. Let me just kind of get a vibe for the room. Does anybody here have a word, or maybe it's a group of words, or maybe something will come to mind, that you agree with the validity of the idea or the item that the word represents, but the word itself does not sound right coming out of your mouth? Anything? I found found this last week. I realized that this happens a lot for me at restaurants. Sometimes I go to a restaurant and I'm like, I know exactly what I want, but what they're making me call this food item isn't working for me as a grown adult man. You know what I mean? I had this last week. We had just got done. We were traveling. We were out west. We'd been hiking in Wyoming all day. I made it back to Boulder, Colorado, and all I wanted, all that I wanted all day was a taco. I'd been thinking about it. I still had five miles left before I got back to the rental car, and I was like, I'm getting some freaking tacos tonight. You know what I mean? And so I've been driving back for a couple of hours to get to Boulder, Colorado, and there in Boulder is one of my favorite, like, quick meals, Torchy's Tacos. (laughs) The band likes Torchy's Tacos. I've been thinking about it all day, and you may not know what that is because we're from Mississippi, but if you would like to join my email cause to get a Torchy's Tacos in Madison, I'll give you the address. We'll, We'll reconvene in the lobby, okay? But... I pulled in, got out of the car, beat my wife in by like five minutes to get these tacos, and I'm talking to another grown adult woman at the counter, and she says, hi, what can I get you today? And I look up at the menu, and I realize that what I'm about to order is the cringiest thing that I'm going to say in all of 2022. And I tell this grown lady, who I'm sure also has a mortgage, like we have bills to pay, and I say, yeah, um, can I get a Republican taco with extra pico on the cheddar sausage? I'd also like the chili wagon, hold the poblano, and let me get a trashy taco, extra trashy, hold the lettuce, extra queso, okay? That's my order at Torchy's Tacos. And I'm like looking at my menu, I'm like, it is crazy that I have to say this as an adult person. It just doesn't feel right coming out of my mouth. I felt that way about a big word that we're going to use today for a long time. The word is mindfulness, okay? Going into our series, Judge Not, mindfulness was a word that rose to the top. But I will tell you from the beginning, I don't like the way that that word feels coming out of my mouth. I don't think that it's because I was raised in a house with four boys and my dad was a welder. I don't think that mindfulness feels funny coming out of my mouth because I'm from the South or because I'm uber-masculine, although I did wear my boots today, all right? I don't think that it feels funny because I'm not in touch with my emotions or whatever, I think that it's because most people that say things like mindfulness irritate me, okay? But mindfulness is the word that comes to the top. And I, and I realized this, and I, I think that it made it easier for me to think about it when I was reading a book by a lady named Anna Lemke very recently. She said this, it helped me make sense of it. Dr. Lemke said, mindfulness is like looking up into the night sky at the Milky Way and realizing that we are a part of something that appears to be very far away. It helped me make sense of mindfulness. Mindfulness is our having the ability to look at ourselves, look at our thoughts and our actions, take ourselves away from our own thoughts and actions enough to analyze them and realize why we're doing the things that we're doing. It says, I'm able to 
analyze the things that I'm doing, but also realize that I am a part of this. Now, I think one reason why maybe mindfulness feels a little foreign to me is because in recent Christian culture, this is not something that we have brought up naturally in our services, in Sunday school, whenever I did that, right? It wasn't something that we talked about a lot. You see, in recent Christian culture, as in the last hundred years or so, there are two options, and, and mindfulness isn't really included in them. Number one, you can either go and study the ways of Jesus and say, yes, that's what I want to be like, or you can study yourself and try and better yourself. But the two never really crossed paths whenever I was growing up in the church. Maybe you, have, maybe you can feel me on that. But I realized looking back and looking at the people that I knew at my home church and looking at the people that I'm in relationship with even now, whenever we fail to realize that uh, the ability to analyze ourselves and also analyze the way of Jesus, whenever we can't do those things together, things become very difficult, particularly if you're trying to live life in relationship with other people. You see, if I just say, hey, I'm looking at Jesus and only reading about him, but I'm not actually applying any of that and able to see if I'm applying that well, my relationships start to break down. And that's why it's very popular and very common, even in the church, for people to experience relationship breakdown, divorce, lack of relationship with their kids, and even suicide. None of those things are uncommon in the church. And I think that this comes from a place of our having the ability to say, yes, I'm broken, but not really knowing how to apply the fix that we see in Scripture. This is why here at Vertical Church, we try and ask elevated questions to get to the point of, how does the information that I notice about Jesus in the Bible help me and help me apply that? Now, last week, Ben opened the series by asking us a question. The question was this, what do you do when you know that something is all your fault? Now, I was on the other side of the country when he asked that question, and I was super glad for that, okay? Because I felt the room, even, even way over in Colorado, like, ooh, it's uncomfortable over there. Way to go, Ben, you know? Yeah, there he is. What do you do when you know that things are all your fault? I was like, gosh, that's, that's tough. I'm glad I'm not there. And the reason that I'm glad I wasn't here is because I know myself well enough to know that my, the way that I err, the mode that I go into is like, well, I'm going down with a ship. It's what we're doing. And that's a little scary when it comes to relationships. My erring on going down with a ship, I'm just going to fight this out, does not typically work well when I'm trying to live life in relationships. I find myself going into what I think are essential battles, and they're really only emotional battles. I dive headfirst into what I consider as this, this confrontation that I think is crucial. But really, I'm just throwing relational punches that never, ever actually need to be thrown. I know that about myself. I know that I go into these fights that never actually need to be fought, call it a personality flaw. But just because I know that about myself doesn't mean that I've done the work to actually figure out how to use that knowledge of myself in real life. Intellectually, that doesn't really make any sense. As a person, 
who in a room full of other people, and I'm not going to assume everybody here is a follower of Christ, that would be pretty naive, but as a person who has said, hey, I'm not good enough, I actually need a savior, that whole goodness thing, I wasn't able to do it independently, I should be able to look at that and say, all right, Austin, you're going to come complete with some flaws, some weaknesses, probably some fears. That's why you needed Jesus in the first place, yes? But here's the thing. A lot of times that very simple equation of Austin minus God's grace equals internal catastrophe isn't knowledge that I bring into my relationships. It's like I expect other people to be able to operate and never, ever need my grace. Here's something that I hope will free you up a little bit this morning, okay? Because I'm, I'm getting the sense that we all kind of deal with that to some level. I think that this is something that we have learned, something that we have been taught by the church that was incorrect for a long time. You see, in Christian culture, we've become very comfortable compartmentalizing where and when our disagreement with people, everyday disagreement with people, can turn into disgust with them. Now, disgust is a big word. It's a strong word. But I use it really intentionally. Because I think if we observe other Christian people, and even ourselves, a lot of times we feel like we have a freedom, we have a license to turn what we used to give them. Maybe it was somebody who went into, who was in a travesty. Maybe it was we were sending them thoughts and prayers. But whenever we realize that we disagree with them on something morally, those thoughts and prayers turn into, I'm going to charge and digitally or verbally come after you. This is a scary thing, but I don't think that it's something that comes natural to a Christian person. I think that it's something that we have learned over time. Let me, let me be clear, I, because I wanna make sure that we understand this. I don't think that the Holy Spirit comes compact with a holier-than-thou complex. I think that that is something that we've been given over time by a Christian culture that didn't understand what they were doing. And so this morning, what I want to do is take this idea and say, how do we reverse that? Where did we get off on this track where we felt like we had this license to judge? And what did Jesus actually have to say about that? I think that to do this, we have to get back to the very beginning. There are steps that come with obtaining this license to judge. The first is this. We observe the obstacle. If you were here for our reversal series, boy, this kind of blew my mind. There are some times whenever you're teaching and you're like, oh my gosh, that was for me. That wasn't for anybody in a gray chair. That was for me. And the realization in that reversal series that my going from opportunities God has given me into an obstacle is hard for me to do as a person, mind-blowing. And I think that this is where that journey, that that. Um, that that offshoot of the intentional route that God had for us to get that license to judge, where we actually go away from God's plan and obtain that license, that's where this starts. It's between the chair of opportunity, that season of life where we have opportunity, and that season of life where we notice that an obstacle or hardship is coming. You see, a few weeks ago, whenever we had that panel discussion up here, we all kind of unanimously said, yeah, I've spent some time getting up out of that season of opportunity and pacing around that chair before I sit down an obstacle. And what you need to realize is that 
There's nothing wrong with hesitation going into obstacles. Actually, I think that if we look at the Bible, God kind of bakes that into the equation. He knows that we're going to have to take a little bit of convincing to sit down into hard things. And actually, that's where God shows up countless times in the Bible. That's a good thing. But the reality is that a lot of times, that hesitation to sit down is what starts us into that second step of feeling like judgment is okay. The second step comes up when we not only don't sit down, but we start to double down on the doubts that we have about the place that God is calling us to sit. Notice, nobody else has even entered the equation yet. We're not even observing other people. We're still within our own story. We jump out of opportunity. We see an obstacle is coming. But rather than rely on God to sit down ultimately, we start doubling down on those doubts. We start to say super churchy things like, okay, I'm going to pray about it. Or I don't know that that's actually where God has called me. Or I don't know if it's actually God's will. And the whole time he's saying, Austin, just sit down. We start doubling down on those doubts and we walk further and further away from the chair that he's asked us to sit in, the season of life that we've been called to live in. And ultimately what happens is everybody else is sitting down and we find ourselves standing across the room watching them. When we begin observing other people instead of our own story, this is where we start to get into trouble. We obtain this license to judge, and out of the shame of avoiding our own hardships, all of that turns into really hard opinions. Hard opinions on things that don't really have that much to do with us. Let me be clear. The end of this cycle is judgment, and I've found myself there before. I have hard opinions on things. But it is possible to reverse ourselves out of that. And that's the work that I think we need to jump into this morning. Okay, everybody's still with me? We're good? We're going to get into a little bit of Bible. I know it's hard, but we still got to keep going, okay? I found myself, even in writing this, kind of getting in a defensive position. I'm like, God, you better chill out. I've had a good week. And I came back and sat down at my desk, and he was waiting for me. But I look into the scripture and I look at the Bible and I start looking at how Jesus attacks this in it of his own life. And I found a lot of grace in the fact that even the people that he hung out with often got this wrong, but it didn't mean that he didn't correct them. And this morning, that's where we're going to be spending our time. There's a beautifully succinct example of this in the New Testament. And it seems to be incredibly imperative to our understanding, not only of how Jesus views that license to judge, but how he wants to reverse that out of our story and revoke that license from us. And one of the beautiful things about our Bible, one of my favorite things about our scripture compared to other scriptures is that we get so many different points of view on this. In this story this morning, we have a great opportunity to see all four gospels, all four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, line up and tell the same story and point out different people who are observing Jesus operate the way that he does. And so... As we jump into this this morning, we see there's this 
man who has leprosy. All of them are pretty sure that Jesus went there with the intention of healing this man. Some of the, some of the gospels say, hey, Jesus was actually invited here to heal this man by a religious leader. Some of them say that Jesus happened to be there. But we know that Jesus walked into a room. There was a guy there with leprosy. Jesus did Jesus things, healed him, and they were all chilling, tailgating afterwards, having a meal together. Like, dang, that was pretty crazy, Jesus. Good work, you know? And as they're sitting there around the table, a mixed lot. You've got a crowd of people who just came to see Jesus work. You've got Jesus' boys who have been following him for years. You've got these religious leaders who may have invited Jesus there, hoping that he would fail. A mixed bunch, they're all there. And an uninvited woman comes into the room. And she's holding this jar. It's a fancy jar, which is weird because she doesn't look like a fancy woman. And she takes out of this jar this perfume and she bends down to Jesus and starts putting it on him. Some of the gospels say that, it put it on his, that she put it on his head. Some of them say that she was rubbing his feet. We're just going to assume Jesus was covered head to, toe, head to toe with this perfume, okay? And you get the sense from some of them telling this story that as this fragrance goes through the room, everyone is able to smell it. They're trying to get a look at what's going on. And they're getting increasingly irritated by the stance this woman is taking by putting this perfume on Jesus. It's interesting, Matthew focuses on the disciples' version of this. Matthew was a disciple, and so it kind of makes sense that he does this. He says, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. It's a big word. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Hold on to that word indignant. It's important. Mark instead recounts the crowd, the outsiders, and I think this may be because he actually kind of felt like an outsider compared to the other versions of this. He starts focusing on the crowd. He says, there were some in the crowd who said to themselves, indignantly, yet again, why was that ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, the people who were just looking on. Luke goes on, and he actually points out the religious leaders. This is interesting. He said, then these guys are essentially like ancient celebrity pastors. Everybody would have known who they were. They would have been known as like the smartest guys and the ones with the following. Luke said, now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this Pharisee, if this man were actually a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And lastly, I think this is probably the most interesting to me because John, the Gospel of John, takes a really strange turn and he focuses on the individual, one individual in particular that is of a big interest. He focuses on Judas Iscariot. He said, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Talk about a bunch of people full in this room who could exhibit spiritual self-justification. Every one of them, all of them, were people who should have known at least something about Jesus. Some of these people were just fanboys coming in to watch Jesus do his work. Some of them were, had been following Jesus for years. Some of them were religious leaders in and of themselves. They were scribes. They knew the Bible better than anyone. And every one of them missed the ticket as to what was happening with this woman in this room. 
And I think by looking at the way that they observe her on the floor, putting this perfume on Jesus, we can gain a couple of really important points to how we go about revoking that license to judge in our own lives. Are you still with me, first service? Good. The first one that I see in this story is this, and this is, this is going to hurt, okay? This is going to hurt some of us. What we, ca- or we cannot conceal our mistakes behind the title chosen. We cannot conceal our mistakes behind the title chosen. It's interesting that it is pointed out how the disciples got this wrong. You see, when we think about the apostles, these disciples, Jesus hand-selected them. Yes, even Judas hand-selected them. And there are stories throughout the New Testament about how they came into this relationship with Jesus. He chose them. And chosen is a big word in the church today, right? Bigger in some circles than others. But chosen is a big word in the church today, and I love that. It should be. Chosen is an important word for those of us who are followers of Christ. Last week, Ben spent some time in Genesis, and he was talking about not the creation story, but the relationship between Adam and Eve and God. And we see chosen even way back in there, because as God was designing the makeup of human people, he did it very, very intentionally. Ladies, just for extra reading, you should go check out how little goes into how God made man and the verses upon verses about him designing woman. Very interesting. But what we gain from Genesis is how much work God put into the designing of people, particularly to be made in his own image. And even back, way back then, thousands and thousands of years ago, we see God being so intentional because he was thinking about who we would be in 2022 even. You see, God, the scripture is very clear. God had you and I in mind, even as he was designing us way back then. So this word chosen is very important. Why? Because even then he knew I'm going to have to do a big work to be able to be in relationship with these people. And I am all for it. I choose to do this because I care about them. But here's the mistake we make with chosen. Oftentimes, the crowds, the circles that like to use that word chosen a lot, kind of use that as this trust fund baby, I have freedom and can do whatever I want to do because I've inherited this chosenness from God. It's a dangerous game. And we often play with that in the circles, or in circles in different churches. It's a scary thing. Yes, God chose to save us, but with that comes a responsibility to grow. He didn't expect for us to stay stagnant just because he chose to do what he did. We can't hide behind chosen. We have to be able to be mindful of our mistakes and grow past that. Second point, when we engage in petty fights, we miss the important ones. When we engage in petty fights, we miss the important ones. This is something that I have to remind myself often because I have that knee-jerk reaction. Let's go. I'm ready. And we see this with the, with the disciples and with the Pharisees often. It's really interesting that the men who were closest to Jesus and the ones who were ultimately trying to kill Jesus often make the same mistakes. The Pharisees have these really crazy arbitrary rules that they like to point out with people as it just seems like they're walking down the road. But then we see the disciples who do things like 
keep children away from Jesus. Oh, no, 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 he's way too important for this. And we see the disciples oftentimes even picking petty fights within and of themselves. I like that both, uh, both Mark and Matthew's accounts use this word indignant as if they were angry, but not just angry, they felt justified in being angry. I think sometimes we engage so intensely in fights that are below our calling as people of God that we wind up having much more allegiance to those fights than our families, than our community, or even to what God has actually called us to do. If you identify with fights, if you identify with certain moral battles more than we identify with the gospel of Jesus, we're making a mistake. And I often find myself in that place. Last point that I see out of all four of these gospels is this. Our inability to learn lends itself to much harder lessons. Our inability to learn from our mistakes lends itself to much harder lessons. And I, I'm about to take a little bit of a turn because this is going to be a little bit of speculation. So hang on, I'm not a scholar, okay? But I look at John's account and I, I think it's interesting that he brings up Judas. We all know who Judas is. He's this evil character in the New Testament. But we see Jesus talk to Judas in the same way that he talks to the rest of them, even the crowd that he had been sent there to save. And it makes me wonder, if Judas had left this interaction with a better understanding of this woman, would his life have turned out differently? Now, my folks who love the word chosen, yes, Judas was probably destined to do what he had to do. But I wonder if his story would have ended up in suicide if he had left here with some empathy. If he had actually been paying attention to the words of Jesus, I wonder if his story would have ended up the same way. Our inability to learn lends itself to harder lessons. And when we don't learn our lessons, a lot of times the end of that story is not very pretty. I love the way that Jesus reacts here. I kind of start spinning this down. He doesn't question motives or the moral root of her actions. He takes her generosity at face value. He doesn't leave room for judgment. And he welcomed her worship of him, even though it wasn't traditional. It wasn't what people were expecting. I'll go back to Matthew here. It says, Jesus is mindful not only of her, but everyone else in the room. He says, aware of this, Jesus said to them, what are you, or why are you bothering this woman? To the disciples, to the crowd, the Pharisees, to Judas. He says, stop it. Stop what you're doing. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. That's a big word, prepare. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said that and it showed up in every gospel? This word prepare, did you catch that? It's in reference to his death. This is a holy thing that Jesus is pointing out about this woman. If you were here last week, you remember that Ben made a big deal of the fact that God was preparing Adam and Eve for what they were going into. And this has been a, this sacrificial stance that this woman is taking 
is actually elevated her. Jesus, in a room full of Pharisees and scribes and people that lived and, and traveled with Jesus and people who were the ultimate fanboys of Jesus, he actually takes a moment to elevate her above everyone else in the room, making her the expert in the room on sacrifice and preparing his body for what he would ultimately have to do. Jesus is essentially saying, you don't need a degree to do this correctly. You just need a whole lot of humility. As we start to close this and we start to look at this woman and, and think about Jesus' stance on revoking this license to judge, I think we have to be able to ask ourselves a really big question. Are my beliefs a barrier to my obedience? Are my beliefs a barrier to my obedience? The things that I've inherited over time, whether it was told to me by a pastor on a stage or a Sunday school teacher or even my parents, the things that I've gained over time that I've built up in my head about what it looks like to live a Christian life, are those beliefs a barrier to the things that Jesus has called me to be obedient in? And if they are, we need to realize that it's ourselves that need to adjust and not the people that Jesus has told us to love. They don't need to adjust their morals for us to love them well. They don't need to adjust their lifestyles for us to love them well. We have to have the ability to show them the same love that Jesus did, regardless of whether we agree with them or not. Judgment never entered the picture. When my instinct is to be critical, I need to remember that my energy needs to be spent on fighting those essential battles. I think I used to be kind of ashamed that I would jump into a fight quickly. I did this thing where I started working for churches. I did a little bit of that Bible schooling. I spent some time with some smart people that said that the Bible didn't say that. But what I've realized in my time here at Vertical is that that's a part of me that God has instilled in me. Some of us have been called to fight. And I've learned that because I spend a lot of time with dozens of you who have shown me that, okay? Some of us have been called to fight. That's not a bad thing about my personality. It's not a bad thing about your personality. So I don't want you to leave here with shame. But what I do want you to know is that we have to be mindful enough to know that like Jesus defending this woman, the good fight is the one that we've been built to engage in. God built you a certain way to engage in certain fights. Don't settle for lesser fights than what your calling is. Ultimately, we have to be able to revoke that license to judge and have those align with our beliefs about who Jesus was and what he sent us to go do. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I kind of just want to echo what we said earlier, God. I pray that we would be present in this moment, that we would be present in where we are in our story with you. God, I'm so guilty of often looking up miles ahead, years ahead, even weeks ahead. I pray that I would be better about being present with you in the moment because, God, we know that you're growing us currently, not out in the future. God, give us patience with our stories. As we read your word and we start to identify things that we need to grow in, I pray that we would know that that's a blessing, God, and we would take that challenge on well, that we would, we would, we would get away from that voice in our head that says we're never going to be perfect, so why try God, that we would be persistent in being people of you, that we would look more and more like you, that people around Madison, when they see us in Kroger and they interact with us at the gym or at work, they say, that guy has been with Jesus and I know that. Lord, that we would be people that mirror you so well that people have questions. 
God, we love you and we praise you. And we thank you for this place. Amen. Have a great week, guys. We'll see you next week.